hello everyone and welcome to the changing faith podcast on the last episode of season one it was episode 20 it was titled my exit interview and on that episode i reflected upon the many questions and conversations and discussions i've had in the process of expanding beyond the evangelical tribe and my shedding the evangelical label and uh, i shared then that i'm not alone and i talked about how so many of us are saying goodbye and jumping off the evangelical ship And we asked, so what now, where to, what's next? And today, we'll take another step in exploring this journey that so many of us find ourselves on. And we have a guest with us who has been a guide for many people for over 20 years. Uh, Brian McLaren is an author, speaker, activist, and public theologian, uh, and an advocate. Uh, His just and generous uh, work with all people of all faiths for the common good is inspiring. And it was actually Brian's book, Uh, titled A New Kind of Christian that was formative for me. Some people would say it messed me up, Uh, but it introduced me to the idea that there may be other ways of thinking. And uh, early on in my process, probably about 15 years ago, um, I had an email conversation with Brian and uh, about heaven and hell, and he had me terrified. And in my panic and in my fear, I was always met with his compassion and his patience and his kindness. Uh, in addition to a new kind of Christian, he has written The Church on the Other Side, Finding Faith, More Ready Than You Realize, Adventures in Missing the Point, A Generous Orthodoxy, many, many other books. And his latest is titled The Great Spiritual Migration, How the World's Largest Religion is Seeking a Better Way to Be Christian. And so, Brian, welcome to the Changing Faith Podcast. <laughs> well, with an introduction like that, I, I'm sort of honored to find out what might happen. But no, seriously, it's great, great to be with you. Yeah. And can I say... I am really impressed with the impact that podcasts like this are having because so many people oh, that's good to hear. were so, they felt so alone and they knew nobody they could talk to. Yeah. And now uh, uh, through a podcast like this, they can find out, wow, you know, they can eavesdrop on other conversations yeah. and find out they're not alone, as you well know. But, yeah. uh, but I, I keep up the great work on oh, what I want to say. Yeah, I've noticed People who ask questions feel intensely lonely. Yes, because they see what happens to people that ask questions. Yes, and it's uh, it can be isolating. But and and you know, uh, a lot of us have been in this sort of a conversation for a long time, and and it continues to s- strike me everywhere I go that somebody today is where I was in you know 1996. Yes, <laughs> you know, and and there are people for whom today is the worst day of their lives because they confided to their pastor that they aren't sure about this or that, and they think they might get kicked out or lose right. their job or whatever. Right. And there, like to your point, there's thousands of people for whom that's the story, and they find a life beyond on the other side. So what was it for you? you I mean, you just dropped the year 1996 <laughs> um, when the word postmodern, people didn't even know what it was at that point, except for people in the academy. Yeah. Um, and now... People don't know what it is because people don't seem to be saying it as much anymore. But what was it that kickstarted your journey of questions and answers and curiosity about the Christian faith? Yeah, well, it was a couple of things, but we got to go way, way back. Uh, I was in graduate school in the 1970s, and what we now call postmodern philosophy really came into the academy through English departments. It was really, even I think before it was a philosophical discussion, it was a discussion about literary criticism. Mm and literary texts. And uh, so I was in graduate school, and one day I got it. 
it went by a couple different names, post-structuralism and uh, deconstruction and postmodern. And I remember thinking, if this catches on, the Christian faith, at least as I knew it, is doomed. Mm. Um, because I realized that people were asking questions that I, I was certain no Christian I ever knew had an answer to, <laughs> and because I'd never heard anybody get anywhere close to that question. You know, wow. and their questions are pretty commonplace now. Yeah. Um, we're, we're, we're realizing that we all have a point of view. We all come from somewhere. Where yes. we we believe what we believe largely because of the context where we were raised. And so, at any rate, all of those uh, questions were there in the back of my mind. Uh, and I went through several intense periods of questioning. You know, in my uh, teens and twenties, I ended up becoming a pastor, and uh, more and more people started coming to our church that I realized they were asking the same questions that I had in some ways confronted and backed away from back in the seventies. Oh, does, wow. does that make sense? Yeah. So like people would come and ask me a question and I would give them my best Christian evangelical answer <laughs> and they would leave with my answer and I'd be left with their question <laughs> because I thought their questions were better than my answers. So, yeah. so that really was the beginning of it for me. Wow. And so you write uh, in the great spiritual migration, you use the image of movement, of yeah. migration, and um, even reflecting in your own story how the Christian faith has long been about people on the move. And so can you describe that, um, that image for us in a little, with a little more depth, sure. how it's, you've seen it happen historically and even how it's existing now? Sure. Well, look, at a very physical level, uh, our best understanding now, and it's sort of amazing the scientific data we have on this, is that all living human beings are descended from some people in Africa about 200,000 years ago. And they started multiplying and spreading, and some went south to South Africa, and some went west to West Africa, and some went north and came across the Arabian Peninsula. In one way, you could say that human beings for the last 200 30,000 years have been migrating so that they now fill the whole planet. I mean, even in American uh, history, we, it's, it's a lie that white people tell ourselves, but uh, people had arrived, uh, human beings had arrived in North America, 12, 13,000, some people say a little more years ago, spread from Alaska to Tierra del Fuego in a few thousand years. And then colonizers came. I mean, every part of the, of the planet now, virtually every habitable part is inhabited. Yeah. And while we're having this conversation, probably the space station is going to go overhead. And we realize we're, we, you know, by the lifetime of some folks listening to this podcast, we might have people in a colony on Mars. I mean, we're, we're a migratory species. We're always on the move. And that's also true in religion. Our religions are constantly changing. We're a a species on the move. But what happens in our religious communities very often is we're told, no, we have it right. We have it correct yes. now. Any movement is departure from the truth. And so we're made to feel guilty for asking new questions and thinking new thoughts. Now that's had big, you know, that there's been that sort of sense of breakthrough and then containment and breakthrough. So I'm a pro I've come from a Protestant background. Protestants had a big breakthrough 500 years ago. Um, and what's been happening in the last several decades, I, I think you can trace the roots of this way, way back, but in the last several decades, there has been another kind of breakthrough. And uh, either our religions are going to continue declining and shrinking and wrinkling, or 
people are going to break through and find new ways to be Christian. And of course, similar things are happening among Jews and Muslims and others too. Yeah. And and you, so you talk about the, the religions continuing to shrink and there's a concern among many about Christianity. I actually had a conversation with an individual who's friends with the, the big, big, big mega pastors around the country. And he said, even they're having these conversations with each other of, is your, is your church shrinking? Yeah, my yes. church is shrinking. Is your church shrinking? Yes. So there is, um, and for me as a pastor, there's, I've heard it a lot. Yeah, people aren't showing up. The attendance yes. is declining. Yes. Um, and so some see it as this whole thing's going to be done. This whole institution's gone, is going away. It's dying. Um, but you don't seem to share that concern, which I find compelling and interesting. And so what do you think mm-hmm. is happening? What do you see the future being? So if, if I tell you the truth, I have to say things that sound like I'm contradicting myself. So, <laughs> but let me say first, it, there's a way that your question that I don't seem concerned. Well, I, I, wish, I wish this wasn't the case, but if I'm really honest, in the last several years, I've come to see how what we call evangelicalism and really what we call white Christianity yeah. has so much toxin uh-huh. in it. Uh, you know, white supremacy goes so deep. Materialism and greed goes so deep. Uh, patriarchy and, you know, a dismissive attitude by powerful men toward women, uh, cl- various kinds of classism and all, it, it, nationalism, it, it goes so deep that if the, the Christian religion as we know it were to have a comeback with those toxic elements, right. I'd be more concerned <laughs> than I am thinking maybe these institutions and communities are going to shrink to such a level and reach such a humiliation. And let's face it, nobody is doing more harm to Christianity than people like Jerry Falwell mm-hmm. and Franklin Graham and Robert Jefferson, you know, all these people who are turning Christianity into parody as they support, you know, a, a, a whole political regime that's allied with white nationalism and yeah. all kinds of ugly stuff. Um, and, and to find people, I just heard one of these guys say that uh, Donald Trump is one of the great moral leaders of all time. I mean, the word moral leader, it just strikes me. Even if you like him for his pol- some of his policies, yeah. here's a guy who lies. And all. So there's a part of this thing that's being discredited. Yes. Um, the Catholic pedophilia scandal. I mean, the irony of people saying we have a- an infallible pope. Well, great. Glad you have an infallible pope your bishop sure didn't do a great job and your yeah. whole system and it didn't do a great job. And if this is the one true holy Catholic and apostolic church and the word holy includes the levels of child abuse that we've seen, you know, you see what I'm saying? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, th- this sense that there's something here that has to be exposed and, and it, it might be chemotherapy where you have to almost kill the thing in order to let it, have a better future yeah. or maybe a better, a better metaphor would be death and resurrection. But put all that aside, <laughs> there's a whole lot of other people who just think, oh, let burn the whole thing down. We don't need it. But, you know, I was in Charlottesville. I was asked to be part of the uh, clergy response to the Unite the Right rally. So I was in the oh, middle wow. of all that insanity. You were, you were there when everything was going off. I was, wow. I was, I was not with a group of clergy who went and stood in the center where with 
bags of urine being thrown on them, being spat on, having they, they filled Coke cans with sand and cement so that they could bring them in coolers, looking like they had drinks. But then as soon as the tension started, they were throwing these Coke cans full of cement. Oh my goodness. Um, and so some incredibly brave clergy were standing in the middle of that. I was on the other side of the police line, and uh, but I, I was just, you know, uh, a short run. I was there when Heather Hare was hit by a car. and But I'll just say, I never thought in my lifetime that I would see in the United States white men carrying Nazi flags, sh- chanting racist and anti-Semitic slogans and yeah. uh, with Confederate flags next to them. And I never thought I would see this. And it was incredibly well organized. Of You could just tell these people were organized. And the reason I bring that up is that people think, oh, let religion die. Well, remember there's a story Jesus told, if you drive a demon out, you know, seven worse demons will come back. Yes. And, and I think that's exactly what he's talking about. There's a lot wrong with organized religion. But if you were to wipe organized religion off the map tomorrow, you might find out that organized nationalism, organized white supremacy, organized anti-Semitism, organized oligarchs, uh, they could bring something a whole lot worse. Yeah. And, and so the, I cannot give up on the idea of local faith communities because we desperately need people who are sowing seeds of goodness into society, who are building character, who are building relationships, who uh, my vision for the church is that every congregation would be a center of community organizing mm. um, and activism for uh, justice and generosity and peace and caring for the environment and yeah. combating racism and so on. And traditionally, it, it, I'll say it this way, the world that I grew up in, which is, was rather conservative, the idea of activism, the idea of anything that smacks of political, that was out of bounds. Yes. And now we're in a day, day and age where everything is tainted by politics. Yes. And so I'm wondering, how do you see, how do you see the convergence of that? Because you mentioned earlier today that you've, uh, you've been more responsive politically and more active politically. Yes. Where's the convergence of that? And how does that, how, how are they informing one another? Yes. So first, let me say, this is a complicated question and we ought to have five podcasts on this because it's, I mean, to really do it justice. So I'm not going to do it justice in what I say right now. But um, uh, I, I, as a guy who grew up white, I went to churches that said, we aren't into politics, we're spiritual. (laughs) Well, you know what? White folks, that was their way of opting out, of saying our nation has a racist history and we've never dealt with it, and we don't need to deal with it because yeah. we're going to heaven. So we argued about all kinds of trivial things while people were being beat up on the Selma Bridge, and you know, uh, uh, while huge amounts of money flowed to the public schools I went to, and, and other neighborhoods uh, got terrible schools. Right. Yeah. So that statement that religion is not political was a, an incredibly naive and maybe sinister. Uh, Mm. lie. Um, But I think what the last thing we need is religion to become the chaplaincies to political parties. That's the the last thing we need. I think the message of Jesus, which is the message that we ought to repent, stop Mm -hmm. thinking the way we're thinking, 
uh, stop thinking the way we're thinking economically, politically, socially, personally. Be willing to have a, a change of thinking. That's what repentance means. And to believe that there's good news. There's a better way to live. There's another way to live and to embrace that. That always is expressed through politics and economics and neighborliness and friendships. It's expressed in every dimension of life. Yeah. Maybe if I give a quick example. Yeah, for sure. Um, in, the, in the book of Acts, there's a story uh, of when Paul went to the town of Philippi. And um, if folks ever get a chance to read that, if you read it with a political lens, what you realize is Paul uh, and his crew come to this town. It's a town with a whole lot of political significance because it's a Roman colony. Um, the lowest people in the Roman Empire were slaves, and the lowest people in the Roman Empire, women, were always inferior to men. So a woman slave is the most vulnerable person in society, and a woman slave who's young, a girl slave, is even the most vulnerable. The first encounter Paul has is with a girl slave, hmm. and uh, when he pays attention to that girl and acts as if she has value. He responds to her question and he tries to help her. He then is attacked by the owners of that slave and they create a mob and bring him in front of a mob and have like a kangaroo court and they claim that he's teaching things that go against the Roman way of life. Well, what's, he hasn't taught anything except that he thought a slave had value. Oh, that's brilliant. It's political. It's purely political. So he's beaten by the business community and by the magistrates. Now, I know it's very hard for us to imagine magistrates or political leaders being controlled by business leaders. <laughs> we just have to imagine that in the old days that sort of thing happened. And so he's thrown in jail, not for a theological reason, because he just did something that was against the entire culture of the Roman Empire. Yeah. He acted as if a slave girl had value. And he saw the humanity in it. Exactly. And then you take the story forward and there's the whole story about he then encounters the jailer. There's an earthquake and, and, and all. And then he encounters the jailer. He has the chance to run away because all the gates come open in an earthquake. And instead he stays because he's concerned about the well-being of the jailer. And so now he starts with the lowest person in the society. And now he's dealing with the middle level person in the society. And then the next morning, um, the uh, magistrates realize, oh, we shouldn't have done that. You know, we were just caving to the pressure of business interests. So they try to scoot him out of town. And Paul says, I'm not going. So Paul and Silas have a sit-in. It's a sit-in in, in the book of Acts. They, were, they occupy the jail. Yeah. It's exactly what they do. Yeah. And they won't leave until they confront the magistrates with their hypocrisy. I mean, it's right there. It's been there all along. But I, was, I probably heard, you know, 50 sermons on that in my life. Oh, and, for sure. And, and we carefully avoided the most obvious thing that's going on there. Yeah. So you, you have that tradition that is the, the Christianity of avoidance, we'll say. Yes. That is all escapism theology, getting yes. out of here, it's going to be better when. And you were in Denver, I think it was a couple of years ago, um, and you, you asked us specifically, with, uh, specifically about evangelicalism, um, can it be tweaked? Can it be like a major overhaul or is it just unsalvageable and we start over? And um, when you think about those, uh, of course, there's more options than that. But when you think about that, what's your viewpoint? Is it just something that we say, give it a really good funeral, 
honor it for what it is and what yeah. it was. Um, but it, it's time for something new. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, a few years have passed and anything I would have said a few years ago is much worse now. I mean, mm. 81% of evangelicals have been, you know, signing on with a, uh, a whole approach to American life. 80%, 81% of white evangelicals yeah. have done this. Um, and uh, so it, it's not looking good. And what even looks worse to me is all of these sort of famous middle-of-the-road evangelicals who've just been silent for these last couple of years. Yes. Babies get put in cages. Environmental regulations are thrown out the window. Uh, people are being Jews and Muslims are stigmatized. Uh, Mexicans and immigrants are stigmatized. When Jesus said, how you treat the least of these, you treat me. And they've been crickets. I mean, yeah. I, I, I find Franklin Graham, you know, he's a human being, but he's repulsive in, in the way he's living out his faith. To me, it's utterly repulsive. Yeah. Um, Jerry Fowell Jr., to me, I don't know what religion he's part of, but it has virtually nothing to do with anything I want to be part of. But I'm, I'm more bothered by all of these popular pastors who just stay silent. Yeah. They, they try to protect, I hate to say it, but they try to make sure that they don't lose too many people and they yep. keep the offerings coming in so the machinery can, and they're under a lot of pressure. But my gosh, it, when do you speak up? Do you wait until people are being sent to gas chambers? You know, do you wait? When do you, when do you speak up? So, and especially because, you know, the, the irony is the gas chambers of Germany were closer to when I was born than we are to September 11th. Um, oh my goodness. Yeah. I was born in 1956. So, you know, 11, 12 years before I was born yes. was the peak Whoa. of the gas chambers. So you realize things can happen fast and things can change fast. And they can. And the lack of discernment of these leaders is stunning. But all of that is to get to your question. I never want to give up on anybody, but I've pretty much given up on evangelical leaders. Yeah. I, I mean, it is it is really depressing. So what I would say is I would have no fear of any evangelical leader. I would ha I, they, they've lost their moral authority. I mean, there's a few exceptions, but the white evangelical leadership to me, I just wouldn't worry about what they say. Now, thank God, there's many, many wonderful people in every denomination and every religion. And those are the people I would look for. And I never lose hope for them, right? Yeah. And I don't lose hope for the church, but that cadre of leaders have, to me, proven themselves morally bankrupt. Yeah, it's interesting. The chief criticism that I always heard from my friends who would not identify as Christian for, I mean, from the day, days that I can remember where it was hypocrisy, uh, now it's the allegiance with the particular party, mostly yeah. Republican, uh, and the, the seeming like you have no morals. Yeah. You don't care how much somebody lies. You don't care yeah. how they treat vulnerable people. And, and look, at that point, it's just another interest group. Mm -hmm. It's just another political block who's trying to get power to get advantages for them. Uh, look, I, I, I don't have any ill will to evangelicals. I just think everybody ought to be treated the same. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and and I, don't want, I don't want Jews to ask for more rights than evangelicals. I don't want evangelicals to ask for more rights than, yeah. than Jews. And and in fact, what I really wish is that our religious traditions made us be concerned about the common good, not just our tribe's good, good yeah. you know. And so in this shift, 
that that's happening yeah. in the church. You, you note three major migrations. That's how you lay out the book: the spiritual migration, theological migration, and the missional uh, migration. Can you just walk us through those sure. briefly and what you see happening? Yeah, there? the spiritual migration has to do with what we define Christianity as, and yeah. for a lot of us, it's defined as a system of beliefs. Now, for some many people, it's defined as the correct hierarchy mm-hmm. or the correct polity and liturgy. But for a whole lot of people, it's the correct system of beliefs. The irony is people have all these beliefs and it seems to make no difference in their lives. In fact, if anything, it makes them a little meaner and sometimes a little prouder. Mm. So something tells me that's wrong if we follow someone who said, uh, I don't care if you say, Lord, Lord, if you don't do what I say. Yes. Or someone who said, uh, look, you can tell a tree by its fruit. Um, so, uh, you know, uh, if, if we say we follow Jesus said the most important thing is to love God and love your neighbor. And, and then we have a hundred different ways of saying your neighbor doesn't matter. Uh, uh, or giving ourselves the permission to judge what's good for our neighbor, uh, as if we know, um, uh, you know, all of that is, is highly problematic. So what's happened, and this has been happening for, I think a century, at least a century in the United States. Um, there's a guy named Walter Rauschenbusch who got a hold of this about 100 years ago, a little more than 100 years ago, um, is we're going back and saying, you know, what Jesus was really about was a way of life, which is the way of love. What if Christianity is actually supposed to be about love? In other words, what if we, what we tend to say is doctrines are essential and love would be nice. <laughs> what if we said love is essential and our doctrines will flow from that? Yes, that would change everything. Well, it's 1 Corinthians 13. I, kind of if ironic, isn't it? the tongue of men and angels and have not love. I'm a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. It's not just for weddings anymore. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. It's all the way. I mean, the, the radical things Paul says. He says, circumcision nor uncircumcision, circumcision or uncircumcision don't mean a thing. Yeah. They are of no value. Well, look, the Bible says it's a value. Paul says, it doesn't mean a thing. The only thing that matters is faith expressing itself in love. I mean, that's Mm. staggering. Paul says that. John says, how can you say you love God if you hate your brother? So uh, anyone who says he loves God and hates his brother is a liar, and the truth is not in him. I mean, that's it's all through the New Testament. So that's the first migration. Um, it, it changes what it means spiritually to be a Christian. Yeah. Um, and I think a whole lot of people are dropping out and giving up on churches that are focused on we're correct in our thinking, and that's what matters most. And they're looking for communities that say, if you could promise me and my family that a year from now, you could help us be more loving people, yes. man, let me in that place. Because it, it is that way, you use that word, the way of yeah. living, which is what the Buddhists talk about. Exactly the, right. Buddhism isn't a religion to Buddhists, it's a way of life. Yes. Uh, and we, we have an Eastern religion too. Exactly yeah. right, exactly right. So uh, that's the spiritual migration. The theological migration is inherent in this is an understanding of God. And what a lot of us inherited was this idea of a God who chooses some people to love and chooses other people to torture forever. Yes. Or a God who is primarily seen as uh, being offended and angry and needs to be placated or appeased. Mm-hmm. And a whole lot of it. And that God is nice to you if you stay on God's right side. But boy, if you cross a certain line, 
it, you know. And a whole lot of us are saying, yeah, that is an understanding of God that's found in all kinds of ancient cultures, and it's found in the Bible. But when we read the Bible and see it as a story unfolding, it looks to us like the unfolding says, oh, that first idea of God, that God needs human sacrifice? No, that's not true. God was willing to deal with animal sacrifice. Oh, hold it. That God who deals with animal sacrifice? Some of the later prophets say, I don't want your sacrifice. Yes. I want your love. I don't need 10,000 bulls. And I want you to do justice, love, kindness, walk humbly with God. So we see movement in the understanding of God from violent to nonviolent, from tribal to not just universal for human beings, but for all of the cosmos, that God actually loves the birds of the field, the birds of the air and the flowers of the field. Mm -hmm. uh, so that sense of an understanding of God primarily as the punisher and enforcer and uh, in some ways the, the vengeful, uh, the, you know, the, 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 the source of revenge for having offended some ideals of perfection, to know God is the force of love in the universe. God is the, is the spirit of love yeah. that's calling us. That's the theological migration. And then the missional, how do we live that out? And one way to say that is that I think we're realizing that organized religion has largely been organized for its own self-protection. Many levels to that. But what we need is religion that would organize for the common good. So we're looking for organizing religion rather than organized religion. Yeah. And on that point, I see more and more people who there's something in them where they want to do something. And what I'm learning over and over is that if something's happening in you, it has to happen through you. Yes. And so much of it is just about nailing down the, the dogma and the doctrines. And the people that, see, that what I grew up with who knew the most were often the most miserable because they weren't doing anything with it. Yeah. It wasn't profoundly changing their lives. Yeah. Uh, there was no real movement with it. So I, I love that idea. What would you say to people who um, they hear this kind of conversation? Yeah. And going back to what I said earlier about when you were telling me heaven wasn't the point and you were freaking the crap out of yes. me, how do you begin speaking uh, to people in that place? And I'm thinking of people listening who they're going to go home um, for the holidays. They're going to be with family, friends, uh, brothers who are going to begin challenging them of like, hey, man, you're going, you're going somewhere dangerous. Yes. How do you begin to speak in a way that's kind, compassionate? And at the same time, a little bit challenging. Yes, yes. Well, first of all, you're right. Millions and millions of people are experiencing that. And isn't it ironic? I think you're going to hell <laughs> is a way of saying, why don't you become more like me? <laughs> uh, you know, come back to be more like me. Yeah. I think you're going to hell if you don't. The irony, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> it, it, is, it is sort of sad. But on the other hand, all those people are doing what they think is right. Yeah. And so the place I would start is I'd start by saying, this person is doing what they feel they have to do. Um, and uh, so they might be constricting their circle and threatening that you're going to be on the outside of it. The thing I would say is if there's any way for you to do it, widen your circle to keep them in it, but no longer give them the keys to be your gatekeeper, to be your, to be your prison guard. Oh, yeah. uh, you can draw a bigger circle than them. You aren't afraid of being push out of their circle. But can I offer something really practical? Oh, yeah. Uh, you know, you're sitting at, at Thanksgiving dinner 
and somebody says, makes some racist comment or some anti-gay comment, and you just think, I can't stand this one more time. Well, rather than blowing up the whole Thanksgiving dinner, you can say, hey, I just want to tell you, I see that differently. And they'll say, well, what do you mean? I don't need to go into it. I just want you to know, I really see that differently. If you want to talk to me about it, we can talk about it some other time, but just need you to know I see it differently. And then, you know, could you pass me the stuffing and yeah. just get on with it? But the, the ability, a friend of mine, African friend of mine really helped me with this. He said, we need the courage to differ graciously. And I love those three yeah. words. It takes courage. If you're just quiet, then in a sense, that person's words become the acceptable norm. It's yes. acceptable to say that vicious thing. Uh, or you think just that untrue thing. Um, you know, let's say it's snowing on Thanksgiving day and somebody says, yeah, so much for global warming. You know, if you're silent, you let that ignorance rule. Yeah. So you say, hey, look, I just want you to know, I see that differently. Yeah. Um, not you're wrong, but I see that differently. And, uh, and then if they come back and ask you later, you can say, well, look, are you really interested in what I think? Or are you just, I don't want to have an argument with you. If you think what you think and you're not interested in another point of view, you know, we don't need to talk about it. Yeah. Uh, in, in other words, I don't mean this in, in a cruel way, but remember how Jesus said, don't throw pearls before swine. I think that was his way. I don't think you're calling these people swine, but I think what Jesus is saying is, why have an argument with somebody who isn't ready for it? Yeah, exactly. Who isn't really interested. They yeah. won't, they don't appreciate a pearl they're just going to trample it underfoot. Somebody told me, to, to your point, and I don't remember who it was, but this is not an idea original with me. In those moments, similar idea, I see that differently. And if a conversation ensues in a uh, better place than around the dinner table, yeah. start by asking, you know, well, why did you say that? Well, I'm curious why you said yes. what you said. Yes. And I've done that. And what's really surprising is how many people, when pressed on, they may, they'll make a racist comment, uh, prejudicial comment, and you'll you know, say, hey, I see that differently. And then you say, well, you said that. Help me understand what, what was behind that. Yes. The stuttering and stammering and yes. almost an ignorance of their own, their own belief yes. is stunning. Can I tell you, that I think is really wise. So somebody says, oh, some global warming, and you say, Oh, it sounds like you don't believe in global warming. You, you bet I don't. Tell me why. How did you come to that conviction? And just to show curiosity yeah. uh, gets them thinking and talking. And you don't even have to say at that point, well, I do believe uh, climate right. change is real. All you've done is you've just shown, you've set up the model. In fact, in both of those ways, one, you've shown a model of curiosity rather than judgment and attack. And in the other, you've, You've said that I have a different. I see that differently, but I don't need to convince you that I'm right in order to, for our relationship to go on, which yes. is an enormous gift to give and to people. And that's the soul work that it's Richard Rohr talks about. Bill exactly. Plotkin talks about. Plotkin talks about the mature. We need egos that are mature. Yes. And that's yeah, that's the real hard work. Um, hey, and, as we finish up, I'd love uh, a lot of people that listen to the podcast have left what I call capital E evangelicalism, which mm -hmm. is the uh, partisan faith. Um, but I've spoken a lot about this, the lowercase e evangelicals, and that's the good news of the text, good yes. news of Jesus. That's yes. universal in its scope. Um, and these are individuals who find themselves in this middle space. Yes. So what words would you offer, almost in a pastoral way, in an yeah. encouraging way, to people listening who feel like, I want to move 
I'm being told I'm dangerous. I'm confused. I have questions. What, what encouragement could you offer them? Yeah. Well, maybe first I'd offer a short explanation Yeah. that very often, well, I'll just tell you a quick story. I, I, um, I have a son who's gay and uh, a f- friend of mine uh, used to be the head of a major uh, American evangelical organization and his, his denomination, a denomination and his denomination was against gay people. Uh, you know, they're an abomination, blah, blah, blah. And personally, he'd had a change of heart about this. So when he found out my son was gay, he went out and, and, and my son had just gotten married. He went out and brought, bought a beautiful Bible and had it engraved with my son's name and, and his new husband. Wow. And gave it to me. He said, would you give this to your son? Like, I was very touched. And then he broke down in tears. And he said, the greatest sadness in my ministry is that my denomination shames gay people. And I have files full, file folders full of letters from parents in my denomination telling me of the agony that they can't tell the truth about their son or their daughter to oh. their church. Otherwise, they would be shamed in their church. And so they write these letters to me, pleading with me to change the denomination, help the denomination change its position. You feel that pain. Yeah. Well, what you realize is those parents are part of two communities. One is the community of their family with their son or daughter. Yeah. The other is the community of their church. And when you live in the intersection of two communities that are opposed to one another Mm. in some way, that's a painful, painful place to be. Yes. And so the first thing I would do is I'd help people realize that we're all part of multiple communities and there's deep, deep tension, cognitive dissonance in being part of those different different communities. And uh, uh, so what I would say to people is... Uh, if you if you can bear losing the approval of that community, mm-hmm. uh, but not losing things that are deep in your heart, if you actually think Jesus is right, you can <laughs> stick with the community of Jesus, even if it puts you out of sync with this other community. Yeah. Now, they might hate you, judge you, misunderstand you. If you're able to keep loving them back, then in a sense, you're more deeply evangelical than you've yes, ever been. Exactly. You're more deeply siding with Jesus. And here's what's interesting. What did Jesus do for saying we should love everybody? What happened to him? He got rejected, criticized, misunderstood, judged, punished. The irony is, at the moment you feel the least evangelical, <laughs> you, you might be the most. Yeah, you might be the most like Jesus. Yeah. Will Williman once said, it was at some conference I was at, uh, how do you put it? If the gospel that you're preaching doesn't get you killed, you're probably saying the wrong thing. <laughs> <laughs> well, and ironically, Jesus said, you know, if you think I'm just coming to make everything nice and happy and, you know, rainbows and unicorns, yeah. uh, actually I'm coming and there's going to be conflict between a mother and daughter and father and son and so on. And I, I think what he was saying there is I'm, I'm introducing a new kingdom, yes, a new element that's going to disturb white supremacy and it's going to disturb uh, sort of family wealth systems and it's going to disturb things. That's yeah. how it's supposed to work. Yeah. And we said at the beginning how so many of you listening who ask questions feel isolated, feel alone. And my encouragement would be 
find those places where people have been bruised, have been burned, and are still asking the questions. Because what I've learned in the journey I've taken is what you find is those who've been battered and bruised and burned, they meet you with an embrace. Oh my gosh. It's like a, oh yeah, let me show you, let me tell you my story. And the grace that comes out of people um, in those stories is beautiful. So It's ironic, isn't it? Until you have been rejected by people that you trusted, Mm -hmm. you don't really understand what's going on in the world. Yeah. And so these people who are hurting you are in that is a gift. It's a gift that nobody would go out and buy and ask for, but it's a gift that maybe if we have the courage to receive it, yeah, bring us farther along that path of love. Yeah. Brian, thanks for the work you've done over the years. You've been rejected. I know that. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, truly, though, I think the what preaches louder than your books and your sermons is is the way you have lived with a kindness toward people who've done you wrong. And so I appreciate that. Thanks it's, so much. Well, pleasure to be with you. And it's thanks been a for guide on me for me. Well, thanks and so. thanks for the space that you're creating. Yeah. For people who uh, are on the same path, and we have some idea of how hard it can be. Yeah. And absolutely. I'm glad. I'm glad they get some encouragement. Right on. Well, thank you all for joining us again on the Changing Faith podcast. My hope and prayer for all of us is that we would be those who find ourselves on the move that we'd be growing and expanding, unlearning, relearning, and learning for the first time about our faith and about the God who is love. So that is it for today. Again, thank you for joining us. And until next time, as always, much love and peace be with you.